to John Swinfield's Big Business Podcast. And now, let me introduce your host, journalist and writer, John Swinfield. Hello, I'm John Swinfield. Welcome to Big Business. I'm a journalist and television producer, and I've spent much of my life writing and making films about business bosses. I hope you find this pod gossipy, irreverent, informative, and even fun. If you like the feed, please don't forget to click the subscriber button. Big Business is on every week at 11am GMT on Wednesdays. In this episode, I'm going to talk about three very different personalities in the entertainment industry. The first is Pete Waterman, who springs from the fizzy world of pop music, where fame and fortune come and go in the blink of an eye. Singers can win overnight stardom and suddenly plummet back to obscurity. Survival is hit and miss for the business operators as well as the artists. Waterman's a record producer, songwriter, studio owner, DJ and TV presenter. He's discovered big names from Kylie Minogue to Jason Donovan and produced hits for the likes of Tracy Ullman and Nick Kershaw. His greatest success was in a partnership with Mike Stock and Matt Aitken, whose writing and production talents became the stuff of legend. I asked Waterman what made a winning song. Oh, that's easy to answer, he said. It has to have a lyric that is totally identifiable to the audience you're playing it to. It doesn't matter if it's classical or pop. Hit songs have to have a familiarity. They have to have a Mills and Boone story that pays off. If there's no payoff, it doesn't work. If you look at all the great stuff, Rogers and Hammerstein songs, for instance, they've all got a payoff. They tell the listener why they were written. If you take Kylie Minogue's I Should Be So Lucky, it tells the audience why you've written the song. Then the public can say whether they like it or don't. They can't sit on the fence. Waterman told me he liked employing working-class youngsters. We've seen the music industry, he told me, trying to have schools of excellence. I don't believe you can do that. There is no academic reason why one tune works and another doesn't. You have to do it to feel it, to understand it. I'd rather have somebody with enthusiasm than qualifications. Usually kids with enthusiasm are bottom of the class but they care passionately about the music. I can teach them the rest. There are too many people who are snobs about music. People still see music as an art form, and in a way it isn't. It's an entertainment. Shakespeare wrote sonnets in hours. He didn't write them in months. Shakespeare wrote plays to sell. Pete Waterman's views on classical composers might, of course, upset the purists. He told me Beethoven didn't write music because he had to write music. He wrote music to make money. He lived off his art. Mozart? Well, Mozart. He nearly starved. People paid him in gold watches because they thought it was immoral to pay him in money. In the end, he had to do a few gigs round the back door to make sure he didn't starve to death. I've always said to people, don't pay me in gold watches, pay me in cash. That's the only thing that keeps the company going. You, you teach the kids, look, you're here now to do a service. But if the public don't buy your record, you haven't won. 
If you want to be artistic, go do it in your bedroom. You're here to entertain. Just like Mozart, Beethoven, Shakespeare and Tolstoy. If you don't entertain people, well, they won't buy your book and they won't buy your record. Waterman can be famously blunt. I asked him how he made the tens of millions he's said to be worth. It comes, he told me, from being a smart ass and not giving other people my money. It came from when I said I'm going to do it for myself rather than give the copyrights to other people. We decided to keep it for ourselves rather than having 40 or 50 other people as part of the company. I have no problem giving it away to other people if they participate in the making of the record. But if they don't participate, well, really, they only become banks. And I didn't and don't need banks. It's down to having a hit record or something the public likes. You can't kid the public. That's the thing the record industry hates most. You can have fabulous campaigns, but if the public don't buy it, you don't make money. Do you know, nobody would give me a deal for Kylie. That's why we formed our own company. At the time, we were the biggest record producers in the world. When we launched Kylie Minogue, we had five records in the top ten that week. And not one record company, we only wanted £1,200, and not one company would give it to us. We said, right, if you don't want to give it to us, we'll do it ourselves. So you do it yourself, and you own everything. And that's what's worth the money. Pete Waterman came from a proud but humble background. He grew up in a council house in Coventry. Another powerful name in the entertainment business, totally different to Waterman, was Christopher Bland. Bland was the chairman of London Weekend Television when it was taken over by the Granada Company. He made a fortune out of the takeover, £14 million, when Granada pounced on London Weekend. Christopher Bland came from Gentry in Northern Ireland. He was born in Japan. His father worked for Shell. And at the age of eight, Christopher was sent as a boarder to Sebra School in Cumbria. He told me it was a tough, rough place. Boarding school regimes were Spartan. Sebra was Spartan among the Spartans. Cold baths every morning, a vigorous and athletic regime. Fairly regular beatings. Pretty barbarous stuff, really. Was he beaten, I asked? Oh, yes, often. For petty offences, leaving your clothes on the changing room floor, not having your shoes marked, turning up late for lessons. Oh, I got a charge sheet as long as your arm. Though he made a pile of money out of Granada's hostile takeover bid, he was still, years later, unhappy about it. He told me the takeover was undeserved. If you're a capitalist, which I am, and you believe that in its frequently crude and unfair way that capitalism is the best system we've got, then when you're its victim, you can't really say, I don't like the rules. What specifically, I wondered, was he unhappy about? Well, losing my job, he said. It was a wonderful job because of a group of 20 or 30 people who were clever, funny and competent. I wasn't called in and told, you're fired. 
I simply sat down with Jerry Robinson, the Granada boss, and we agreed what was obvious to both of us. There was no room for me. There was no job. Was he bitter, I asked? Well, I think that could be a tendency. I feel extremely sad about it. I think it was a bad business decision on the part of Mercury Asset Management, our major shareholder, to sell us out. They had 17 or 18% of our shares. They made a huge amount of money out of LWT and decided to sell. That, in my view, was a lousy business decision. But they also had a very large amount of Granada stock. That, of course, was the decisive element. Bland later bought a vineyard in France and Prue-Lise Cookery School, she of television's The Great British Bake Off. The battle for London weekend television certainly bruised him, but doubtless the millions in compensation that he received softened the blow. Yes, he agreed, that's certainly one way of putting it. Somebody else who made a pile of money out of London Weekend Television's takeover by Granada was its chief executive, Greg Dyke. Dyke walked away with £9 million, £5 million less than Bland, but still by anybody's standards, a tidy stash. Dyke came from relatively modest beginnings and achieved high office, climbing the slippery media ladder. Starting out as a journalist, he was always impatient. Oh, yes, very impatient, he told me. If people send me 14-page documents, Dyke went on, I say, oh, please come back and tell me what this is about or write it in just two pages. Isn't that simply journalism? I asked him. Oh, yes, he said, I think it is. I like being in journalism, a programme producer. It's why I like running companies, because I can do, frankly, 8, 10, 12, 14 different things in a day. I keep them in my head, and I can jump from one to the other. That's what I like. He had a reputation for using, now how shall I put this, rather unboardroom language on occasion. Did he swear? Oh, yes, constantly, he said especially at work. I wanted to know what made him mad. Well, I get very angry when I think about how many institutions betrayed us at London Weekend. I didn't like being sold down the river at first bid. Dyke's inexorable rise and rise began when he left York University and started in local newspapers. He later landed a job at London Weekend Television. He subsequently revolutionised the breakfast show TVAM. When he took it over, it was a disaster, fronted by the famous five. David Frost, Michael Parkinson, Robert Key, Angela Rippon and Anna Ford. But the five flopped. Advertising collapsed. Tumult ruled. It was being slaughtered by the BBC's breakfast time. Dyke opted for radical populist surgery. He brought in new presenters, celebrity gossip, bingo, horoscopes, and the irrepressible puppet, Roland Rat. Rat-like cunning in a boardroom is the norm, but rodent rule in TV was something else. Dyke later quit to join TVS, the ITV station in the south of England, as its director of programmes. Three years later, in 1987, 
he returned to LWT, replacing John Burt as the director of programmes. When Granada took over, Dyke grabbed his riches and later popped up as the boss of Pearson Television, through which he acquired the Australian Grundy Television, the maker of Neighbours, starring, of course, Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan. In the year 2000, he again replaced Burt, this time as the BBC's Director General. He left in 2004 when the Hutton report into the death of Dr David Kelly was critical of the BBC's reporting. Greg Dyke has never lived down Roland Rat and the charge that he dumbed down TV. I think they'll put it on my gravestone, he told me. Rat man dead. When the sun first did it, I was going to LWT, and they ran a headline saying, Roland Rat's dad gets top TV job. I thought that was brilliant, a really clever headline, a Kelvin McKenzie special. Kelvin was the editor of The Sun. But when it's still happening, years later, you think, God, this is boring. But I don't get offended by it. I don't take any notice of anything that's written about me. One could hardly talk about Greg Dyke without mentioning his passion for football. And with his interest in the game and his business background, it was almost inevitable that he would be professionally involved. A director of Manchester United and Brentford football clubs, he was the chairman of the Football Association, the FA, for three years, from 2013 to 2016. Greg Dyke will probably never forgive me for resuscitating the dreaded Roland Rat. Let me just add this. Greg Dyke is one of the most remarkable people the industry has produced in many years. And at a personal level, he's as energetic, as irrepressible as Roland, his infamous rodent. You've been listening to Big Business. This is John Swinfield signing off. Don't forget to click on subscribe. I'm on every Wednesday at 11am GMT.